Mr. Matsuno. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Stroop. Professor Bullitt and Mr. Stroop, Nathan, my dear friends, have told me that you have already covered the ulama. That is a lot to cover about the history of Iran and Islam in general. And I will begin where I understand Professor Bullitt has stopped last time, with the rise of the ulama, or the men of religious learning, in 9th century Iran, as well as other parts of the Islamic world, but here we are more concerned with Iran. The ulama, or the group of learned men, was indeed a male-dominated group. Most of the members of the group were men, but transmission of religious knowledge also took place to women. Certain members of ulama family, and we have dissertations on them in the modern period, and we have biographical information about them in medieval biographical dictionaries, also got to learn about what was known as knowledge, or religious knowledge, or ilm, in the early Islamic period. But the group that we know as ulama was primarily male-dominated. What did the ulama know? When we talk about them being a group of learned men, learned in religious knowledge, what kind of religious knowledge are we talking about? Have you been introduced to the idea of hadith? What is hadith? What is meant by hadith? Exactly. So hadith sayings attributed to the prophet of Islam, there is a body of the hadith, and then there is a chain of transmission for every hadith. Do you remember, or any of you, would you give me an example of what a hadith sounds like in English? Right, exactly. All Muslims should seek knowledge. All Muslims, it's good for them to wash their hands before food. It's good for Muslims to brush their teeth after food. Or, sometimes more elaborate, more theologically significant ideas about the nature of God, about Islamic law, inheritance, treatment of one's household, etc. So this class of learned men, how did they study? When did they study? Based on research that has been done, members of the ulama family, or in general, people who wanted to become part of the ulama class, would send their children to study hadith at a very early age, around the age of five, for example. Usually the child would be accompanied by her father, or an older brother, or an uncle. They would sit in a session, in a hadith transmission session, conducted by a very old man. Usually a very young child would sit at the feet of a very old man, narrating hadith. And his brother, or his father, or his uncle, the person accompanying that child, would write down the hadith and keep it for him. Then the child would grow up. For the most part, the child would become a merchant, or go about his business, being a peasant, or a worker, a city worker, whatever. And also, if they were serious about becoming an alim, 
or a member of the ulama, they would go on a trip or a series of trips for the collection of hadith. Let's say a member of the ulama, of an ulama family, lived somewhere in Khorasan, in, in the city of Nishapur, a city in greater Iran, in present-day Iran, in Khorasan. This young man of about 19, 20, would, would go on a hadith collection trip. He would go probably to some nearby town. Let's say he would go to somewhere in Central Asia. Let's say he would go to Herat in present-day Afghanistan and collect hadith. Or as he matured, he would travel farther. He would go to, uh, to Iraq. For example, he would go to Baghdad to collect hadith, to the cities of Basra and Kufa. Sometimes one would go to, uh, to uh, Sham, to Syria, present-day Syria, to Mosul, northern Iraq. Or sometimes as far as Egypt. They would go as far as Egypt. One destination that was very important in the selection of hadith, as you can uh, surmise, was the Arabian Peninsula and the two cities of Mecca and Medina. Students would go there in the hope of collecting hadith, hearing hadith that was not already known. Or they would want to hear it for themselves and collect it and to say, I heard this great uh, master of hadith tell me what he had heard from his teacher and then there is a continuous chain going back to the Prophet of Islam. Uh, a few years ago there was a very interesting dissertation at Columbia done by a student in sociology who, uh, Recep Sinturk, who studied these networks of hadith transmission for about uh, 14 centuries, beginning in the 2nd century, uh, 13th centuries, 12th centuries, right until the 20th century. So there is a continuous tradition of hadith transmission, hadith collection, um, that was very important. But in addition to the religious aspect, the pious aspect of hadith collection and hadith narration, uh, you see that these travel routes for the collection of hadith uh, linked cities in very important ways. On the routes that students went to collect hadith to uh, learn about hadith and Islamic law and sayings of the Prophet, also networks of trade developed. So in the same way that a student would go from Mashhad, from Sabzavar, to, from, from Nishapur to Herat they would, to, to learn hadith, in doing so they would also take some, something to sell. And they would buy something there and bring it back to their hometown. So we have very densely connected networks of cities that developed at this time. And the ulama are a very important part of, this, uh, of these networks. It is interesting that during the 9th century especially, Eastern Iraq, this is a class on the history of Iran, so it makes perfect sense to emphasize the centrality of Eastern Iran in, in the canonization of hadith, in the collection of certain hadiths that were regarded as canonical and uh, the core body of hadith that are still regarded as such to the present day. Uh, there are six collections of such hadith. Have you heard about them in this class before? Has that been discussed? Okay, there are six collections, six major books of hadith, sayings attributed to the Prophet, that are uh, 
said to be canonical or standard. Uh, one of them, the most famous one, is by is known as the Book of Muslim, and these canonical books, each one of them is referred to as a sahih, correct, standard. That's the meaning of the word. And the all six of them together are referred to as the sahih, the six uh, canonical books. The most famous one is uh, one of the most famous ones is by Muslim. from Nishapur. <laughs> Another famous book is by a man named Bukhari from the city of Bukhara. Bukhara in Central Asia in Uzbekistan today. Uh, another one by a man named the Nisba, as I'm sure you have already heard this word, this place affiliation by a man named Ghazvini, Ibn Majah of Ghazvin. And Ghazvin is a city in Iran present-day Iran. Another one of them uh, is Sejistani. <coughs> Sejistan is a region in southwest Iran, here, around this part, Sejistan. And another one of them, uh, the sixth one, is Nasa'i, or Nesa'i, from, from the village of Nesa, or Nasa, around here. So it's very important to note that the six standard or canonical collection of hadith that are regarded as uh, standard works of hadith to the present day in Sunni Islam were all compiled, were put together in the 9th century in Greater Iran. Yes. Tirmizi, another one. Uh, so I have one, two, three, four, five. The sixth one is Tirmizi from Kerna's region, which is also in Uzbekistan, it's southwest Uzbekistan. Again, all of it is in this rate of Iran. And when we talk about the history of Iran, it's not about the modern country of Iran only, but it's about this greater uh, region um, that we have to consider, including Afghanistan and uh, Central Asia. Very important, all six collections are products of uh, Central Asia or Iran, greater Iran. <clears throat> Any questions about this? Yes. Um, are these uh, regarded as something to be followed by both Shia and Muslims? That's a very good question. These six books are standard collections of hadith for Sunni Muslims. For Sunni Muslims. The Shiites do not accept these books as canonical. Uh, and it's interesting that even though the Sunnis at this time are not all the same, but different Sunni groups accept these six books as canonical. There are many other collections of hadith as well, but these six have acquired this um, aura of authenticity around them. Extremely important, well into the 20th, well into the 21st century to this day. Now you can easily access them online. They're all made available electronically. I will talk about later on in this uh, talk about Shiite collections of hadith. And what is the difference uh, some, there is some difference in terms of content, but more importantly, the difference lies in chains of transmission. More importantly, the difference is in chains of transmission. Who said what, from what, which is closely linked to the idea of these networks. Where do you get your hadith? Who are you tied in with? Okay? Okay. So the class of 
ulama, men of religious learning, gained and acquired its legitimacy through laying claim to knowledge, religious knowledge, ilm, that you have already seen. Now, through reliance on this notion of ilm, knowledge of the Prophet, knowledge of Islam, the ulama class acquired a political role, acquired and performed important political roles in cities. The ulama were a reference group in cities for the most part. And here we are talking about Sunni ulama for the most part, even though there are, at least there is one example of a Shia city in Iran already in the ninth century uh, where Shia ulama were also important. Uh, that was the city of Qom, uh, that will be here, which still to this day remains the center of uh, Shia ulama to, the, to, to this day. Anyway, so the ulama played an important political role in these cities. They were a reference group. So as a reference group, what function did they, uh, did they perform? They were in charge of what we would call the judiciary. Judicial functions were uh, performed by the ulama. Give me some examples of judicial functions that you can imagine from this period. That is what, right, judge, a judge uh, is called a qadi, uh, or uh, in Arabic, qadi means a judge. So what does a judge do? Usually dealt with like matters of inheritance. Exactly, matters of inheritance, land ownership, transfer of land, contracts, marriage. You see what kind of power this group would wield in a city, right? Uh, in addition to performing functions of judgeship directly, because not all <coughs> ulama are on the same level, major ulamas would become judges, but then there are lesser ulamas, right? <coughs> in Central Asia, they say Kazi Kabul, mm -hmm. which is the big judge, mm -hmm. and all the other Kazi will follow. Exactly. So you have a major judge, usually in the city, usually in charge of the uh, congregational mosque, or closely tied to the congregational mosque. Uh, there is a lot of money involved. There is control of endowments of the mosque, performance of the weekly prayer ritual, uh, and also being a major judge. There are lesser judges, especially in the countryside, for example. Right? Lesser judges who adjudicate in the countryside. They are also part of this ulama class even below the judges in the city and in the countryside, there were witnesses. Who gets to bear witness in a court of law? There are professional witnesses who are known in the community and they are called upon to come in and bear witness in courts. Very important function, again, uh, politically very significant. Uh, this is why they formed a patrician class, the ulama, and their legit legitimacy is based on their claim to religious knowledge, and at the same time, through this interconnected network of cities, they had enormous mercantile power. They were merchants, very wealthy. Major ulama were major merchants in cities, as well as uh, having control over the countryside as landowners. So the see, uh, major uh, means of power were in the hands ulama in cities and then indirectly in the countryside. One function that the ulama did not perform, and it's extremely important, what do you need to run a city? What do you need to rule? 
in addition to having uh, knowledge. Force. You need force, right? You need military force. You need military force to quash any rebellion. You need military force to coerce the people to pay taxes. You know, the, the peasants. You have to extract taxes from the peasants. The ulama did not have that power. The ulama remained a non-militarized group. Who had the power to do this? Who had the power in the ninth century to coerce taxes? Great. The caliph sitting in Baghdad, um, here. How would the caliph collect taxes here? Or farther here in Tebnus? How would he do it? He would find a group of already militarized loyalists to the caliph and dispatch them there and say, okay, you rule on my behalf in Khurasan. You rule on my behalf. And what you do is you coerce taxes, you collect taxes, you maintain order, uh, and send me the taxes. And also, you maintain some degree of control over trade routes. Right? A very early example, a very important example, again, based in Iran, in northeastern <coughs> Iran, and this extended their rule extended into Tajikistan and as far as uh, southwest Uzbekistan and well into Afghanistan, was a uh, dynasty of rulers referred to as the Tahirids, named after uh, the founder of this dynasty, a man named Tahir who is very close to the Abbasid Caliphate. So the Abbasid Caliph, around the year 220, dispatched this man, Tahir, a military commander, a warrior, a warlord, to, uh, to Khorasan and said, you, on my behalf, collect taxes, control the trade route, maintain law and order in that region. And the Tahiris, the Tahirids, the uh, dynasty that this man started, ruled in, in Khorasan uh, for about 50 years, until 873. I mean, the, the dates are not important. So in the 9th century, beginning in the early 9th century, the Abbasid Caliphate had this one military commander here. And there were others. There were other warriors and other warlords who competed, who tried to negotiate with the Caliph. They would say, okay, if you give me authority, if you give me permission, I would collect taxes for you from this region, where Tahir cannot do it for you. I have my men, I'll collect taxes for you. And we see this in the history of 9th century, that the Caliph plays with these warlords, assigns different parts of the land to different warlords. Sometimes he assigns the same piece of land, the same area, to two different warlords. So they would fight off each other. And eventually, they would send the taxes to, to the caliph. Why did the warlords need the caliph? Any thoughts? Legitimacy. Pardon? Legitimacy. legitimacy. Because a warlord with legitimacy from the caliph is a king. Without legitimacy from the king, he's a brigand. He's a thief. And there are religious injunctions against thieves. Now the ulama come into the picture again. You see? In order to be legitimized, these warlords also needed some kind of backing, some degree of backing from the ulama, in order to have permission uh, to collect taxes. One other important aspect of Tahirid rule in Khorasan, especially the Tahirids, uh, who were closely tied with the Abbasid Caliph, was, was their role in trade, in slave trade. 
the Tahirids based primarily in Khurasan captured or traded in slaves from Central Asia and a general and generic term used for the inhabitants of uh, Central Asia in Islamic texts was that they were called Turks general term in uh, the writings by Islamic uh, geographers the land beyond uh, the Oxus River Transoxania until up to China was called Turkestan, the land of the Turks. So one of the functions that the Tahirid kingship or the Tahirid dynasty performed was to send slaves, Turkish slaves, this is in the ninth century, from Central Asia to Baghdad, the center of the Caliph. It's a very important <coughs> change in demographics, bringing in Turkish slaves. And many of these Turkish slaves that were um, sent to Baghdad performed military functions. They were warriors. They were soldiers. And they came to uh, play a very important role later in Iranian history and in Islamic history in general. Okay, so two functions by the, by the, by the locally appointed king. Coercion of taxes and control of trade routes Quashing any rebellions. What other functions? What made what? Uh, <coughs> this is not a common sense question. I have to give you the answer. Uh, and the answer is every week, these locally appointed warlords in Khorasan and elsewhere had to pledge allegiance to the caliph. So, who performs the Friday prayers? The ulama. Where is it performed? In the congregational mosque. There at the Congregational Mosque, every week, the person who addressed the congregation, the person known as Khatib, the person who addressed the congregation, delivered an address. An address in Persian and Arabic is called khutbah. And in that khutbah, he named the local king and he named the caliph as sources of authority. The caliph as the source of authority and the king is having authority on the, on the on behalf of the caliph. You see again, the ulama play a very important role in recognizing the local king and giving them legitimacy, uh, recognizing their legitimacy. <coughs> Another function that kings <coughs> performed, uh, these local kings as well as uh, the caliph who sat in Baghdad, was that they minted coins. This is one important source of information one important source of information about these local dynasties. Who ruled where and from when to when. Part of the evidence comes from literary sources, you know, chronicles. Another important source is coinage. So they minted coins. Coins. Very important, again, a lot of information we get from these coins about iconography on these coins, what these coins said what they represented about the dates of rulership and uh, what icons were used. How was the king depicted? Was the king depicted at all? Is there pictures on these coins? If there is a picture, is it of the king? Uh, does the king wear a crown or not? These are very important uh, questions about uh, coinage that we that become important. Okay, the Tahirids. It's a very important dynasty at very close ties 
to the Abbasid Caliphate. But they were at heart, how can I say what they were at heart? We know this from literary sources. They expressed a longing for Baghdad. They didn't really want to be in Khorasan. They conceived of themselves as Arabs. They were totally Arabicized. They were totally <coughs> Arabized. At the same time, for example, some of them served as king in Khorasan, and they had a simultaneous appointment as chief of police in Baghdad. And they'd rather be in Baghdad. They didn't want to go to, to, to Khorasan. They would rather have someone else do it on their behalf. So one thing that uh, developed in the ninth century, again, is the emergence of local families who took over this function of kingship. Uh, my examples come predominantly from Khorasan, but I can make similar arguments, and I can give you examples from other regions as well. A very important family of landowners in Khorasan, in greater Khorasan, in this region, uh, trace the lineage to pre-Islamic times, to a Sasanian king. And they said they claimed to have legitimate um, hereditary rights to rulership in the area. Actually, they claimed, and this claim was apparently accepted by the uh, Abbasid chroniclers and the caliphate, that their great-grandfather, around the time of the Abbasid Revolution, had actually uh, pledged allegiance to the cause of the revolution. When did the revolution happen? I know you have uh, studied this. Sir. When did the Abbasid Revolution take place? Sir. 750. That's a very important turning point in Islamic history, including Iranian history. So around this time, a local magnate in this area, a man known as Salman Qudal, Salman pledged allegiance with the Abbasid um, warrior or warlord, future caliph uh, al-Mansur. Now, later on, in the, 19th, in the 9th century, two centuries after the Abbasid revolution, his descendants said, yes, we are going to rule this region on behalf of the Abbasid caliph, and we are going to have a new dynasty. That dynasty we know as the dynasty of the Salmonids, the Salmani dynasty. In modern historiography, Tajikistan looks back to the Salmanids as the founders of the country of Tajikistan. What is important about yes? Can you write down the name of the city, please? Which one is it? Well, the Salmanids were based in Bukhara. I can give you many names for cities, but uh, I think what is important for you to rem remember is that the rise of these local dynasties took place in northeastern Iran and Central Asia. Clear? The one that sounded like Khorasan, is that right on the border? I just didn't know how to spell it. Which one? Khorasan. Khorasan is a region. Khorasan is not a city. Okay. You see, on this map, Khorasan, this place is marked Khorasan. In present-day uh, geography, Khorasan is a province in northeastern Iran, right? Actually, there are three provinces named Khorasan in Iran, northern, middle, and southern Khorasan. But 
in the period we are talking about, Khorasan is not just a region in Iran. Uh, rather, Khorasan is a, great, is a much greater region. It's a much bigger region that extends from here, around this region, well into Central Asia, including Afghanistan. All of this is Khorasan when we talk about uh, this period. Yes. Right, sure. Uh, this, is, this is the spelling you'll find in the Encyclopedia of Islam, for example. Greater Khorasan. In order to distinguish it from uh, present day Khorasan in Iran. It's referred to as Greater Khorasan. Khorasan means the land of the sun. Because if you are. Uh, you know, a Sasanian, this place is to your east, centered, you know, the Sasanian Empire was based in, around Baghdad, in the city of Madain, in Ketesiphon, Tisfur. And this place was east. This is where the sun comes from, Khor Asan, right? the land of the sun. Okay. Um, now, the Salmanids come to power in the ninth century, they have a claim to pre-Islamic to pre-Islamic rulership. Uh, they have very close ties to the Abbasids, and the history goes back to the allegiance of Salman Khuda to the Abbasid cause. They are very friendly toward the ulama, <coughs> and the ulama are predominantly Sunni in this region. Um, you have heard about the Hanafis and the uh, Shafi'is already. In the previous lecture. Central Asia in this period was referred to as Hanafi-Istan. People were Hanafis. People were Hanafis. Hanafi religion was the dominant form of Islam in, in, in Khorasan. And the Salmanids were also Hanafis. And they had strong ties with the Abbasids as well as the ulama. How did this manifest itself, this close tie with the ulama? If you are close to the ulama, what would you do as a king? You would support their activities. What do the ulama do? They produce books, right? They write books. One of the, but one kind of books that they write are hadith books. All these books are written during the uh, kingship of the Salmanids. All of these six books are compiled in the ninth century. Uh, with direct or indirect, most likely indirect patronage by the Salmanids. What other kinds of books did they, uh, did they support? One of the earliest examples of writing in what we call New Persian language was also supported by the Salmanids. That was a major translation of a uh, commentary on the Quran that was uh, finished around the year 920 in Baghdad a commentary on the Quran, a huge commentary in uh, 30 volumes. I think the modern edition is printed in 20 volumes. Huge work. This was translated into Persian. With, this is important religiously. You get permission from the ulama to translate scripture into local vernacular and to translate a commentary on it. So there is very Who gets to do that? Who has the knowledge to do that in the first place? The ulama. So the ulama are uh, an important part of this. Another important uh, work that the Salmanids also commissioned and had translated 
was a history of the world, a universal history, also written in Baghdad in the early 10th century. Uh, again, that work is now available in English in, uh, I think, more than 30 volumes. Huge work of history, written originally in Arabic. Selections of that work were translated into <coughs> New Persian at this time. Again, you see the relationship of the Samanid with Islam, with Sunni Islam, with the ulama, with Persian language, and there is another component in the society that the Samanids supported. And that other group, other than the ulama, the ulama are not the only group that had some claim to knowledge in the region. They had knowledge of Islam. What about knowledge of pre-Islamic times? The ulama did not have a claim to that. But the local landowners who traced the lineage back to Sasanian times, uh, they were the keepers of this pre-Islamic memory. They knew stories about uh, mythical, mythological Iranian kings, and they knew about the history of Iran before the advent of Islam, before the coming of Islam. This group, this important group of landowners, mostly based in the countryside, who maintained this interest in pre-Islamic uh, Iran, were the Dehbans. Dehban. Uh, I assume you have seen this word before, in the context of Islamic conquests, right? So by the 10th century, this group is still powerful to a certain degree as a group of landowners, and is a group that has interest in pre-Islamic Iranian history. Are they Muslims or are they not Muslims? By this time, they have already converted to Islam. So they are Muslims but still have this interest in pre-Islamic Iran, and there is, for them at least, there seems to be no conflict between being a Muslim and maintaining an interest in pre-Islamic Iran. That is important, and we'll see why. So the Samarites, who traced the lineage back to pre-Islamic times, supported the ulama, and also supported the Dehbans in reviving this knowledge about pre-Islamic Iran. And the person who is most important in this context, the name that is most important in this uh, relationship, is Erdosi. Again, I know that you have read parts of his work in, uh, in your discussion of pre-Islamic Iranian history. But he wrote his book, a very important epic uh, work, a collection of stories about pre-Islamic Iran, about the mythological past of Iran, Jamshid, Hushan, Kekabus, and others, as well as the historical part of the history of Iran, the Kianis, the Pishdadis, the Arsakids, and the Sasanians. Now, he wrote a book. What is the name of his book? The Shahnameh, right? The Book of Kings. Or the King of All Books, as both meanings. Uh, he started writing this under the Samanids. And you see the context. Why is now knowledge of pre-Islamic Iran important? He finished it around the year 1000, and you already you have already read parts of it. Who is the most famous character in the Shah Nama? Rostam. Rostam. 
one thing to always uh, remember. Okay. A very important event or process that was going on in this town. Just as the Samanids were uh, getting the <coughs> ulama to work on a translation of a commentary on the Quran and Ferdowsi worked on a uh, on a reworking of the Shahnameh into a new Persian. A very important development took place. That is the Samanids used to employ Turkish warlords to fight their wars, to maintain law and order in the region under their control. Remember I mentioned earlier that the Tawhids were uh, involved in sending Turkish uh, slaves to Baghdad. Some of those uh, Turkish slaves became very important military commanders under the Abbasids. And they had ties to uh, other military commanders in the region. And the Samanids relied partly on these Turkish warlords in maintaining order in their territories. But what happened was that these Turkish warlords did not remain loyal to the Samanids. They revolted, and ultimately, they ousted the Samanids from power, and they took over. So we have a new dynasty of kings coming to power, uh, a Turkish dynasty. Actually, more than one Turkish dynasty uh, under these warlords that used to fight for the Samanids, but then they rebelled and took over by a man named Sebuk Tegin. was a Turkish warlord, you don't need to worry about the names uh, again, who overthrew the Samanids and took over and established their own, their own uh, dynasty. The dynasty that was eventually based in Ghazna, in present-day Afghanistan, and became very important both in Iranian history and in Indian history. That dynasty uh, continued for several centuries as the rulers of India. But this is the context in which they come to power. The Turks, warlords, take over. They are closely <coughs> loyal to the Abbasid Caliphate. And by religion, they have, uh, they have converted to Islam. Their version of Islam is Sunni Islam, strongly Sunni. The reason I emphasize this is to point out that religious affiliation has a lot to do and says a lot about politi political allegiance. Being Sunni in this time politically meant strong support of the Abbasids, of the Abbasid Caliphate. Any questions about the Turks, about the new dynasty? Any questions? Is everything clear? Yes. Were there any like non-Sunni Turkish groups at this time during these periods around Khorasan? Not that we know of. There are various kinds of, Suf of Sunni Turks. Not all Turks are of the same uh, persuasion in being Sunni. But for the most part, they emphasize their being Sunnis and not Shias. Right? And that's important. Yes? Um, would you be able to explain the um, mixture of Shia, and especially the Ismailis <coughs> and the follow Shia in places like Tajikistan, mm -hmm. and um, Sunni Okay, that's important. I'll talk about it. That's a very important question. I'll talk about it, uh, if only briefly, uh, in a minute. Okay. 
So in order to address that question, I have to point out another group of the population in Iran. Yes. You mentioned Shiites maintain that after the Prophet of Islam died, 
the most worthy successor was his son-in-law and uh, close companion and his cousin, Ali. But historically, that didn't happen. There were three other caliphs before Ali came to be, to be caliph. So there is one way to reduce the whole Shia-Sunni debate or divide to this question of uh, preference, you know, uh, preference of Ali over Umar. It's not only an emotional preference. It is the notion of walaya, which is the central idea that defines Shia Islam. And that is uh, literally transit to authority. It is not an emotional question of who was better suited to follow Muhammad, who was a better person in terms of personal characteristics, but who was ordained by God, who was chosen by God to be the rightful successor to Muhammad. So it is a question of succession, rightful succession. Who gets to rule after Muhammad? Who is the most um, worthy person to follow Muhammad? Now, the Sunni response is that the Muslim community made its choice, Abu Bakr, then Omar, then Osman, then Ali, and then the Umayyads came to power. Uh, the Shias maintain that it was principally Ali's right to be uh, the rightful successor of Muhammad, and then they differ among themselves, different Shia groups, on uh, who after Ali deserved to be uh, successor. And the question for successor or leader, leader is imam. Very important notion. I'm sure you have heard the word imam as a person who leads uh, prayers, right? Everybody knows about that in, in the news. Imam, such and such, a person who leads prayers, uh, who stands in front of the congregation is called an imam. Not so in Shia Islam. Imam has a uh, uh, sacred meaning and it has a very specific application. The first rightful imam or leader after Muhammad is Ali. Then his elder son, Hassan. Then Hassan's brother, Hussein. And I know you have seen this story in this class before about the massacre that took place in Karbala, and that's a defining moment in Shiite history. What happened here after Hussein is a matter of dispute. And we have different kinds of uh, of, of succession. Yes. And Ali, one of Hussein's son, after Ali, it becomes problematic. One line maintains that this Ali had a son named Zayd, who rebelled against the Abbasid, against the Umayyads, around the year 740 and was killed. And part of his troops, part of his loyalists, fled into Iran. Some of them may have gone into uh, northern Iran, this region, the uh, southern shores of the Caspian Sea, the region that was referred to as Tabaristan. <coughs> the Zaydis. So the followers of this line are called the Zaydis, Zaydi Shias. It's very clear, it's about the name of uh, the founder or the principal figure of this in this lineage, followers of Zayd. Zayd, son of Ali, son of Hussein, uh, brother of Hassan, son of Ali. Large group of 
Shias were Zaydis. Do we still have Zaydis today? The Zaydis were predominantly based in Yemen, but most of them converted to Sunni Islam in the 19th century. There are still pockets of Zaydis in Yemen. And, um, so Zaydi Islam is not dead. It continues, but it's a very small uh, part of the Muslim population. After Ali, what happened? After Ali, he had a son named Muhammad. He had a son named Jafar. And here is another schism. What happened after Jafar? A certain group maintained that he had a son named Ismail, and he was the rightful Imam. Another group of Shia, and this is a very simplistic and simplified account of, of words and disagreements that uh, went over, went on for, for centuries. But uh, a certain group maintained that Jafar transferred rightful imamates, being an imam, to a son that he had, and his name was Ismail. Another group of Shias maintained that no, Ismail was not a rightful uh, imam, rather it went to a son of Jafar named Musa, and it continued until uh, the 12th person in this line, in this line of imams, had disappeared and went into occultation, went into hiding. And he is a messiah, he's a messianic figure who's going to come back and at the end of times, and his name is Mahdi, or he is referred to as the Mahdi. His name is not the Mahdi. Mahdi means uh, the rightly guided one. So you already see three kinds of Shias here, right? In this in, in this uh, diagram. What are they? Zaydis, Esmailis, and Twelvers. Exactly. These are the Twelvers. They have twelve Imams. So the Imami Shias. So you have three groups of uh, Shias, at least. What happened was historically. Zaydi Shias, who differed from the other uh, branches of Shia Muslims, they maintained that in order to be a rightful Imam, one only needs to descend from the family of the Prophet, family of Ali, and then have the wherewithal to take to take power. So there is a uh, what legitimizes is the ability to take power. It's not just lineage. I mean, lineage is part of it, coming from the family of Ali. But then, you don't need to continue in that line. All leaders do not have to come from this, this line. You see, this line of imamate, or being imam, continues to the present day. Right? This line, the Ismailis continue today and the present day, and they have, um, I think, the 40th, uh, 44th 41st, I'm not sure about the number, Imam, who lives in England for the most part, or Switzerland. Uh, very important uh, religious figure. Uh, very active in Tajikistan, for example, and uh, other parts of the world. So this line continues. For this, and it's a lineage base. The, the person now, the Imam, traces his lineage back to Ismail and to Jafar and others. But the Zaydis said, no, this is not required. Any person from this family, any person descending from Ali, as long as he is courageous enough and powerful enough to take matters in his own hand, is a rightful imam. So victory justifies uh, justifies rulership. This group 
descendants of this group became powerful in here. Beginning in the 9th century especially, uh, the story is that one of the uh, rebels of this line fled to this region. He was given sanctuary by tribal rulers in the area. And within a few generations, he managed to convert the population in this region to Shia Islam. How he did it, we don't know. It's not clear. And this is how the story is told in, in literary sources. That this man, Nasser al-Utrush, managed to convert the majority of this population by around the year 900 to Shia Islam, to Zaydi Shia Islam back to the picture what did we have around the year 900 we have the Samanids here right? Samanids, Persian based who fights for the Samanids Turkish warlords all of them Sunni and now you have this group of people who here who have also converted to Islam who are also militarized but they are not Sunni, they are Shiite one thing that the uh, Samanids wanted to do was to recruit warlords from this region and bring them into their troops. Why is that? Again, uh, back to your question. In the uh, beginning in the 9th century, beginning in the 9th century and early 10th century, North Africa, especially Egypt, was taken over by descendants of Ismail or by a group of Shiites who claimed descent from Ismail. Right? They called themselves the Fatimids, descendants of Fatima, because Ali was married to the Prophet's daughter, Fatima. So all this line goes back to Ali and also goes back to Fatima. So they called themselves the Fatimids, and they claimed descent from this line of Shiism, Ismaili Shiism. And the story is that when one of the uh, rulers of this uh, dynasty, rulers of Egypt, entered the city of Cairo at the time it was called Fustaf. He said, I'm a descendant of Fatima and I've come to rule. They said, well, show us your credentials. What shows that you are a son of Fatima? And he showed his sword and said, this is my credential. This is my credential. Hard to argue with. And he did manage to establish a, a very powerful, very powerful um, dynasty in Egypt. So it was a matter for the Samanids now to try to maintain as much of the wealth that they could gather to themselves. So it was in their interest, sometimes, to negotiate with the caliph, either with the caliph in Baghdad or with the ruler in Egypt, right? The descendant of the family of the prophet. Both, you have two caliphs, two people who claim to be rightful caliphs. One in Baghdad claims descent from the Banu Hashem from Abbas, from the Prophet's uh, uncle, another group that claims descent from the Prophet's daughter in Cairo. Now, if you need legitimacy, either of these could uh, theoretically give that legitimacy. So sometimes the Samanids, a few of them, at least two of the kings of the Samanid dynasty, have been said to be trying, to have been trying to, to get legitimacy from Egypt, not from not from. So it was in their interest, those two in particular, to recruit their warriors from among the Shiites of this region. 
right? You see the rivalry now between the Sunni Turks on the one hand and the and the uh, non-Turk non-Turk converts to Zaydi Islam from Iran. And this group, in order to give them a name and not just call them non-Turks, they are Deilamis, because the region in Tabaristan from which they came from was known as Deila. Deila. And the warriors that were from that region were referred to as the Deilamis or the Deilamites. Okay. Yes. Well, by the time you have the canonical collections of hadith, there is a general understanding that Sunni Islam exists. And it consists in strict adherence to the uh, exemplary conduct of the Prophet of Islam as codified in, those, in that body of hadith. So by this time, late 9th century, early 10th century, the idea of Sunnism is established, is known. Answer your question? Yeah. If you want to uh, ask more questions, please do. Okay. Um, okay. So you have an infiltration of Salmanid troops by the Deilamis. But the Turks who took over and ousted the Salmanids were very much opposed to this Shia group, to the Deilamis. So you, you have a racial tension, you have racial tension between Turks and Deilamis, you have sectarian tension between Sunnis and Shia Muslims. What happened is, now that these Deilami uh, militarized tribes and warlords are no longer fighting for the, for the Samanids, and they are in fact uh, competing with the Turks. They say, okay, if we can't make inroads in Khorasan, we are going to take over western Iran, central and western Iran. You see, this region belongs to, belonged to the Samanids and now belongs to the Turks, right? To Sevaktikin and his son. This region, this is where the Deilamis come to conquer. This is around uh, the year 910, 920. And we have a number of warlords, Deilami warlords, who come and try to establish their rulership over parts of the Iranian plateau. For the most part, they are opposed by the ulama. They are not Sunnis. So uh, it's not an easy transition. One of the ideas attributed to these groups, to these Deilamis, is that they wanted, part of their ideology was to revive pre-Islamic Iranian kingship. So in, in many of the stories, we have that these Deilami warlords would make themselves thrones made of gold, and they would put on their heads crowns made of gold, and they would struck points with pictures of themselves bearing these uh, elaborate headgears, very much similar to Sasanian kings. So we have that revival of Sasanian ideas of kingship. Um, statements have been attributed to these warlords as saying to some of them that we are going to destroy Arab rule. We are going to revive Iranian kingship. And Iranian nationalism in the 20th century looks up to these uh, 
Beylami warlords, and accept them and embraces them as heroes of Iranian nationalism. Not so much in, in, in medieval historiography. Medieval historiography uh, depicts these warlords as renegades, as non-Muslims, who were uh, set to destroy the caliphate and to destroy Islam. One of them, whose name we know, is Mardavich. Mardavich means a hangman, the person who hanged his enemies. Um, but eventually what happened, and I, I, I realized that my time is almost up, a certain group from among these uh, Deilami warlords took over. And that is a group made of three brothers and their troops. A brother named Ali, the elder brother, his younger brother named Hassan, and the youngest brother named Ahmad. These three, who descended from a fisherman, this is how uh, medieval sources uh, introduced them, from a fisherman named Babuya, or just Buya. Buya means uh, a very a, a, a diminutive form of the word Baba, father. So these are children of Buya. <laughs> of a man named, they called Buya, uh, Baba, father, who was a fisherman. But then later historiography uh, under these people depicts Buya as a descendant of the of Sasanian kings. But here, these three brothers, sometime around 950, I just give a uh, rough date, vanquish other Delami warlords and establish themselves as close allies of the caliph. They negotiate, they write letters to the caliph and say, accept us, our form of Shiism is not Ismaili Shiism, so we are not your rivals. We are not with the Egyptian Fatimid Caliphate. We are not Zaydi, we are not out there to destroy the caliphate. We don't want the caliphate. Instead, we adhere to a more peaceful form of Shia Islam, which is 12 Shia Islam. And we are going to be uh, at your service. We are going to be your arm. So what happens is that the youngest brother, Ahmad, manages to get into, find his way into Baghdad and negotiate with the caliph. Uh, and he conquers Baghdad. He becomes the ruler of Baghdad. And he secures for himself and his brothers titles, titles, means, uh, titles mean uh, recognition by the caliph. He himself becomes the person who gives glory to Islam. His brother becomes pillar of Islam. And his elder brother becomes uh, the strong, strongest pillar of Islam. Very important, you see, you get three Shia brothers making their way into Baghdad, negotiating with the Caliph, and becoming rulers of Iraq, and Western Iran. They establish a dynasty, very important dynasty that is known as the Buya dynasty. Now this word in English becomes Buyid. Uh, how many of you can read Arabic? Okay. The way this is written in Arabic is Buya, right? 
And if you want to make it into a uh, uh, into another uh, into an affiliation, what's the final one? Okay. controlled by the, by the Turkish warlords in the east. The Buyids had three main courts. One based in the city of Rey, near present-day Tehran. One based in the city of Isfahan. Actually, they had four courts. One in Rey, one in Isfahan, one in Shiraz, present-day city of Shiraz, and one, is ba- one in Baghdad. Baghdad, of course, is the court of the Caliph, but also the Buyid king is treated as as de facto ruler. Interestingly, uh, chronicles tell us that the name of the Caliph at the time when uh, Ahmad went to uh, to Baghdad was named his, the name of the Caliph was Mustakfi Allah, the person who seeks sustenance from God or who thinks God provides for him. Ahmad, after a few days of being in Baghdad, had him dragged out of his court and thrown out onto the street and replaced him by another caliph who obliged to take the name Al-Muti Abillah, means uh, the obedient one, obedient toward God, of course, not toward the new king. But this is a very important moment because now the Buyids, a Shia group of warlords and their troops control the center of the caliphate as well as parts of Iran that were previously not not Shia, but were Sunni. This is a very important moment in the history of Shia Islam. Just as in the 9th century, all the canonical books of Sunni Islam were written in greater Iran, in this region that I mentioned. Now, the Shias have four canonical books. And out of these four canonical books, Three of them are written here in Baghdad under the Buyids. And the fourth one is also written under the Buyids, but it's written here in Qom, in Iran. This is the moment, just as the 9th century was a defining moment for Sunni Islam through the codification of Sunni Hadith in those collections of six canonical books. Now, the the 10th and 11th century, early 11th century, uh, became the central defining moment for Shia Islam where these canonical collections of hadiths were compiled and also important works of theology uh, were, were written. The most important thing in the, in the Buyid dynasty, and the Buyid dynasty lasted for uh, slightly over 100 years, <laughs> is a man named Azad al-Dole, who was a very important king. Uh, who based his court one court in Shiraz and one court in Baghdad. Um, he's one of the greatest kings in Islamic history. 
The important thing about him, as far as the Iranian history is concerned, is that he adopted the regnal title of pre-Islamic Iranian kings for himself. He called himself king of kings. He called himself Shah and Shah. It's a very important uh, transition, Shah and Shah. It may be the case, as has been argued by Professor Madelung, that even before Azad of Dole, some rulers had toyed with this idea of calling themselves themselves Shahan Shah. But it's with Azad of Dole that we get this on his coinage, in literary sources, and he becomes the king of kings. Yes. Sorry, quickly. So this he rules out. Where does he rule out of the United States? Out of Shiraz and Baghdad. He has two courts. Two courts. For example, in Baghdad, one of his important contributions was the establishment already in the 10th century of a public hospital. Of a public hospital known as, he called it Bimaristan. This is the word that is still used for the hospital. So this was a public hospital in which people were treated uh, free of charge for the most part, and great physicians worked there. One of the most famous uh, physicians of the medieval period, uh, who is known in European sources as Ar-Razes, or uh, Ar-Razi, was practiced medicine in this, in, this, uh, in this hospital. Also, he established a, a, an, observator, an observatory in Isfahan, under Azamudwale, uh, where one of the most important astronomers of the medieval period, a man, man named Abdurrahman al-Sufi, were. And he is known in medieval astronomy as Azofi. If you read Latin sources, in, in the history of astronomy, his name is Azofi. So this is a period of cultural, a very dynamic period, culturally speaking, for the Shias, for the Sunnis, for Islamic science or science under Islam. It's a very important period. Two scholars have described this period. One was Adam Metz in the turn of the uh, 20th century, wrote a book in 1902, and another uh, professor. Uh, in Israel, Joel Kramer, have described this era, the Buyid era, as the period of Renaissance in Islam. I mean, it's a little bit anachronistic and difficult to accept that description, but it's easy to see why they call it that, because it's a period of extreme cultural activity, very uh, flourishing culture of books, paintings, institutions such as Bimaristan's and uh, observatories, and other uh, similar institutions. How did the Buyids maintain their, how did they keep their warlords in order? How did they uh, keep them loyal to themselves? And this is very important uh, economically speaking, is that they strengthened the institution or the instrument, the legal instrument that we know as Iqtaq. I know again you have heard this word. What is an Iqtaq? It's a land grant. The thought is a, is a temporary land grant. So what the Buyids did in appointing generals to regions, they would give them a thought. They would appoint to their warlords, to their uh, generals, large pieces of land. And it was a form of tax farming. So those commanders were responsible for gathering the taxes and sending them to, to the to the court of the uh, 
uh, of suzerain, of the Puyid suzerain, whether it was in Shiraz or in Rey or in Isfahan or in Baghdad. This important institution becomes very important and remains very important after the Buyids. And this is what Professor Borat will talk about next class. Uh, he will talk about the uh, ousting of the Buyids. But the institution of Hiptah remains important, and a closely related institution, or again, uh, uh, instrument in Islamic law, that is the instrument of endowments. In order to keep a piece of land within the family and keep it away from military takeover by these generals, as long as they abide by Islamic law, you endow the land as a religious as a religious grant. So it becomes a religious property, not individual property. It's a very important idea, and I'm sure this will be talked about in your next class by Professor Ford. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've got the undergraduate midterms. Um, if you came late, graduate midterms, we'll probably get back next week. I just have a quick question. So, after, after the Buyids established control, 